Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest this week is Julie Cohen. She is the award-winning novelist of uh, The Two Lives of Louis and Louise, which won the Burt's Books Book of the Year Award for 2019. Yay! <laughs> As voted for by all you guys. So, first of all, well done. Thank uh, you. Um, and But also, you've had other accolades in your time. You've been featured in the Richard and Judy Book Club twice. Twice, yeah. First with Dear Thing in 2014 and together in 2018, which is when we first met. Yes, when I was vowing to get my tattoo. Yes, <laughs> we'll come on to that later, I'm sure. Um, but when you're not writing, you teach creative writing workshops mm-hmm. and uh, you're the vice president of the Romantic Novelist Association, I read. I am a vice president, oh, a vice president. of the There's Romantic Novelist. There are a bunch of us, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, the, the main qualification for that is that not that you have to do any work, but you just have to champion romantic fiction whenever you can. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, that so it's like not it. elected... Um, and it's not, it, it, I asked if there was any work involved and they <laughs> said, no, just be feminist and talk about romantic novels a lot. So not so much work, just something that you enjoy doing anyway. It's great. And then a title that I can just put Did on my... Paid? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've got to ask, so this is becoming a bit of a thing um, with, with the podcast, is I, I do a little bit of research, find something on Google, which is utterly wrong um uh-huh. this might not be wrong but i think it is uh-huh. are you an actress no no yeah, that's google's mistake <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if you type it in there's a picture of you against this actress's name yes there is um, yes and i get a lot of messages for the actress <laughs> and i also get quite a few messages for julie cohen the film director who oh, yes. uh, directed rb uh, G, which is a great film, and I love her, and I wish I were her, but I'm not. No. <laughs> Rowan, uh, if you Google Rowan, it says um, she was born in 1941. Wow. Yeah. She's very well-preserved. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think I might have to rename this as just the Correcting Google podcast. <laughs> so It's very hard to get Google to correct a mistake that they've made. I can imagine. Um, so I've been trying to get that mistake rectified for a while, because it's embarrassing sometimes when you're speaking and the person doesn't show you the bio that they're going to read on stage and you have to either correct them on stage or pretend to be an actress. And as I'm not an actress, <laughs> I'm not good at pretending to be an actress. <laughs> so we've got Julie Cohen, author, a vice president, not an actress. That's right. Wonderful. Um, so I've asked you to choose seven books and the idea of this is to learn a little bit about you, find a few recommendations of some books we might have missed, um, and and like I say, learn a bit about your life through the books on your shelf. Mm. Um, So what is your first choice? My first book is the book Why I'm Sitting Here Right Now, which is A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. Have you read it? I haven't. Oh my god. There's so much I haven't read, it's ridiculous. It (laughs) is. So it's the first book of an epic fantasy series set in Earthsea about wizards, and it's about um, a battle between life and death. And it's it's about a wizard, a, a young boy who discovers that he's a wizard and gets brought to wizard school, where he meets all sorts of people and finds his greatest enemy, who is pretty much himself in a different form. You know, 
Uh, okay. <laughs> but except published in the 60s or the 70s, I think. Um, and it's a... Um, yeah, it's essentially Harry Potter before Harry Potter, but it's not... It's much darker book. It's a much darker book. It's about life and death, and it's very poetic and it's very beautiful. And I read this when I was ten or eleven, and I decided that I wanted to write a book just like it. So I started writing my first novel, which was a sort of gender flipped version of that, which is about a girl wizard who finds out she's a wizard and gets brought to <laughs> wizard school, <laughs> where she finds her greatest enemy. Um, and uh, I, I hand wrote that. It came to about probably about 120 pages. Wow. I drew all the maps. Everybody had really stupid multisyllabic names. Yeah. It was just, you know, she had violet eyes and rainbow hair or whatever. And um, it, was, it was terrible, I'm sure. But I still have that somewhere. And that is the first book that made me want to be a novelist. Wow. Let's think another five stories in that series yes when i read it there were three yeah and then she wrote the fourth one and then there was another one after that it's like 30 years between between the start and the end so when you read the later ones did it match up with how you felt about the first one or have you read the later ones there's so much i've i haven't read the last one in the series but i've read the fourth one called tahanu um and it Tahanu is a very mature book, and I think the first three books can be read as adventure stories, whereas Tahanu is about the characters when they're elderly, um, and it's about the love and trust between them. So it's a different sort of story. Um, It's a story about growing old. But the books are very, I mean, they're children's stories, but they're not. Ursula Le Guin was a feminist. She was um, an anti-racist. She was yeah. an extraordinary writer, extraordinary. And the the ideas in those stories are just amazing because Ged who's the magician his enemy is his own self and he ends up battling his own self you know through the ages and learning about himself and who he truly is in quite a profound way Um, and the second book is about a young girl called um, is she called Trahana? Um, but it's about a young girl who becomes a servant of a god and is um, a priestess and who loses her religion during the course of the book so it's 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 quite big themes it's very big <laughs> themes and really beautifully written i reread the first four a couple years ago and they really stood up to second readings and you were saying about how she was uh, feminist at, but at also anti-racist the yeah. characters in the book are uh are black characters yes they yeah. are yeah and that was quite um uh, I don't want to say revolutionary, but it was un- unknown of really in the, at the time they were first published. Mm. Yeah, um, she, it's not a big deal no. in the book. Their skin color isn't a big deal, but the different islands because it's set in an archipel- archipelago. How do you even say that word? Archipelago? Group of islands. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's set in a group of islands, and and the different islands have different races living on them. Okay. Um, so it's it's in there, um, but it wasn't a big Big deal in the book but it's part of the entire world brilliant um what's your second choice my second choice is watership down by richard adams have you read that one have you only seen the movie because you need to read the book i do need to read the book it is amazing it's funny because if you ask what my seven sort of most influential books because you didn't ask what my favorite books were you asked what the books that changed my life and most of these books are books that i read before i was 20 wow 
Um, so because they really shaped my way, you know, yeah. through life and the choices that I made later. So so that's interesting. That it's an interesting story... choice because I think if you had the seven, you might come up with more recent, yeah. potentially. If it were favourites instead yeah. of instead of books that changed my life. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. Watership so... Down is incredible, though. And all of these books I've read multiple times you know I've read them as a kid and then I've read them again as adults and probably all of these books I've read five or six times Watership Down I mean it's an adventure story about rabbits um which should not work and yet it is the most extraordinary book and it's only when I reread it a, a few years ago um as an adult as I realized that it was it's the odyssey yeah with rabbits yeah. Um, I mean, who thought, who would think to do that? This guy is a genius, right? <laughs> who wakes up one day and is like, hey, I'm going to write the Odyssey except about rabbits. It's just awesome. And <laughs> one of the things that's the most incredible about this book is that it, it does something incredibly skillfully, which is that it creates this entire vocabulary of rabbit language. Yeah which you gradually learn through the book. So by the end, you are totally steeped in rabbit language and rabbit mythology. And those words and the mythology have stayed with me ever since. So you're fluent in the rabbit language. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not fluent, but you know, but you see rabbits out um, eating, you know, at, at dusk. Yeah. And the rabbit word for that is souffle. Oh. And so you see rabbits, you're like, they're doing still plays. Oh, no, actually, that's, <laughs> that's not, not a rabbit a word. Thing, that's but... from... And, and um, the, the word for um, car is frududu, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. That's a lovely word. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's a great book, and, and it's about, it's about um, the underdog under rabbits finding strength and learning how to survive through cleverness and teamwork. Um, and it's what was really important, though, for me when I first read it, again, probably at age 10 or 11, was that it was really, really thick. Yeah. <laughs> that was what you were you were going for, a big book. That was totally my criteria in finding a book, which leads on to the next book in the list as well. But it was thick. And so when I finished it, I felt like I had really accomplished something. It was yeah. Like competitive reading instead of just reading. And I'd done this big doorstop of a novel. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I have, like we said, I haven't read it, but I've done a little bit of research. And there's been some criticism over the role of the female rabbits. There, there's hardly any role for yeah. female rabbits. How, yeah. do you, how do you feel about that now? It's like, would you recommend this book even now as a, in your role as a feminist uh, vice president? Or would you recommend it with the caveat of this is a great book, but don't use it to reflect feminine roles in society? Um, well, I mean, it's rabbits, but that's really a, a cop out to say, well, it's about rabbits. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to reflect human values. Um, it, it's strange because... As I said, a lot of these books are books that I read when I was a kid and I didn't notice this. No. You know, I grew up in Maine and a lot of my favorite writers were male writers um, and they were really talking about men. And looking back at The Words of Earthsea, the first of that trilogy is about a man and about his journey. And then when I rewrote it, I gender flipped it. But then the second book is about a female, a woman, a girl. Um, Watership Down is very much about the male rabbits and it's based on the Odyssey, which is very much about the men. So, so it's from the source material. But I think that is a weakness in the book. The female rabbits are there to be bred with 
and there's one of the adventures they have is that all the male rabbits escape and they don't have any female rabbits to have baby rabbits so they have to go and steal some female rabbits from <laughs> other warrens um, in order so they to go raping mate. in a pity game. They do, they do, but they only take the ones who want to come with them. Oh, okay. But um, and and the female rabbits are very brave, but they don't have an active role. So yes, I think that is a fault of a lot of classic novels, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> What's your next choice? My next choice is *The Complete Sherlock Holmes* by Arthur Conan Doyle. This book I read right after Watership Down. Okay. <laughs> and I happen to know this because <laughs> for my birthday, my aunt and uncle gave me a book token. And we didn't have a bookshop in the town where I grew up. So we had to travel about 45 minutes to get to the nearest bookshop. They gave me a book token to spend. And I had just read Watership Down, big doorstop of a novel, competitive reading. And I walked into the bookshop and I looked for the thickest book I could find. Because <laughs> I was like, I only have so much money to spend. I'm going to get myself a big book. It's going to last me a long time. So I found the complete Sherlock Holmes. I remember it really well. It had a red slipcover and the pages were like onion skin because it was so, you know, thin. And uh, they had to get so much in there. There are, there are 56 six short stories and four novels and it was all in there 60 all together and and I was like great I'm gonna get this it's a really big book and I took it home and I started reading it and that book probably more than any other book completely changed my life because I fell in love with Sherlock Holmes I fell in love with John Watson I fell in love mostly with Victorian London. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I absolutely adored the Victorian London that was in Sherlock Holmes. It's it's eccentric, it's exciting, it's shrouded with fog and handsome cabs, and I became obsessed with England and with Victorian times. And also, when I had finished all of the Sherlock Holmes, I realized that there was something called the annotated Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized there was something called, a group called the Baker Street Irregulars. And I realized that there were people who pretended for fun that <laughs> Sherlock Holmes was real. And they went through the stories with a fine tooth comb trying to find clues about his real life. And that there was this huge body of scholarship about Sherlock Holmes. And I thought this was so exciting. And that got me into literary criticism yeah. and also just playing games with literature you know the idea that it would be it was fun to take these things and to read into them and to try to find clues. do more with them yeah. than just the yeah book. yeah so that so that a book isn't just a story it's a game it's a puzzle and it's something that you have to solve and which fits really well with Sherlock Holmes anyway of course, yeah. <laughs> and that is the reason why I um, studied English literature at university. And that is the reason why I moved to England. For, for Sherlock. For Sherlock. <laughs> I moved for Sherlock. And I remember, uh, I first came to England when I was 16, and one of the first places I went to was um, the Baker Street station on the Bakerloo line so that I could see yeah. the Sherlock Holmes and the tiles there. Yeah, the mosaic of them. And I was taking pictures in front of them. <laughs> and that, that moment completely um, determined my life. 
for the rest of my life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, but now you're living in Reading and not in Baker Street. It's true. It's true. I don't live in Baker Street, so that's very disappointing. <laughs> but it makes <laughs> but it's still time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yeah, like you say, it's a big old book. It's, um, I, I nearly did. I nearly didn't allow this as a choice because I thought she can't take the whole lot. But then I know <laughs> it exists as one volume, yeah, does, yeah. so we'll we'll allow that. But it's twelve hundred pages, or at least the, there's a new edition published last year that uh, is twelve hundred pages. But what I was surprised about is because I've read some of the short stories. I've, I think I've read one of the novels. Uh, you you think of um, Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes as being this massive, almost Christie-esque series. Mm. And it isn't. It's four books mm-hmm. with, 50, I mean, all 56, but 56 short stories. Yep. So I was surprised that what they call the canon was quite relatively small. Yeah, compared to some other authors. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and yet people have been criticising them and finding clues in them, you know, for since 1888. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Do you think there's a worthy successor to, to Sherlock Holmes. There's a lot of detectives out there. Have you ever found anyone who comes close? Do you know, I don't read that much mystery fiction right now, but I am absolutely addicted to the TV series House MD. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my uh, sort of Sherlock, new Sherlock Holmes. New Sherlock. <laughs> Uh, how do you feel about the uh, the Sherlock series, the Benedict Cumberbatch? I love series one and two. Um, um, they're really clearly... What I loved about series one and two is because they know the canon so well. Yeah. And if you know, because I know all of the stories, I know who did it whenever I, you know, I, I've read them all so many times. Um, and so if you know it, there are so many little in-jokes and little sly winks and nods uh, to, okay. to people who are Sherlockians and... and ultra fans and I absolutely love that um I I didn't as it went on I didn't like series three and four very much I thought it got a little bit too um yeah a bit too meta and yeah. uh, and the women were getting increasingly annoying um and so and that's due to the writing not the actresses um but I I really when the first couple series came out, especially when A Study in Pink came out, I yeah. was blown away. There hadn't been really anything on TV like it for a long time, had there? The way that it was produced as well was incredible. It was so good. But what I loved was the geekiness, yeah. the geek factor, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, in, with all the little tiny jokes. And, and like in the first one where she, scra- where she scrapes R-A-C-H yes. on, the, on the ground. Now, in the original story, the, uh, Lestrade, the clueless detective, says, oh, it's why was she writing Rachel? Oh, it was he. Why was he writing Rachel? And Sherlock Holmes goes, Oh no, it's Rach. It's the German form for revenge. And in the um, TV thing, they flip it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just really clever. Oh, good. Um, okay. What is your next choice? My next choice is Middlemarch by George Eliot. And I didn't read this when I was a teenager, unlike the other ones. I read this as an adult when I was doing my degree in English literature. And I just think it's the best book ever written. I think it's extraordinary. <laughs> Every time I read it, I find something new in it. It's, I, I, just, I just can't believe it. Again, it's a big doorstop book, so, you know, competitive reading. But every Dorothea is just such an extraordinary character. And she is, she's 
good, but she's not your Victorian angel in the house. No. She's strong and she's clever and she's intelligent. She has an enormous heart and she's always trying to do the right thing. And she's suffering unhappiness. And unlike so many strong women in Victorian fiction, she doesn't die. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a tick. <laughs> no, right? Um, and it's a story about a community and one person, but it's also a story about the interconnectedness of all things. Yeah. I think it's a philosophy as much as a book. And every time I read it, George Eliot's mind is just so extraordinary. And there are so many facets of human behavior in there. Um, and she's taken, she, she does what I think a good novel does, which is to take one specific moment and area and make it applicable applicable to all human life. Yeah. And how do you, how do you do That's, that? I mean, it's so it's been so many people have said it is the greatest novel of all time, haven't they? The greatest English novel. Oh, of yes, all sorry, time. greatest yeah. English novel of all time. What's the greatest American novel of all time? I don't know. See, I don't know American literature as well as I know English English literature. Isn't it? Uh, do the People say Great Gatsby a lot. See, it? I hate The Great Gatsby. I've mm. never liked it. Well, I love Slaughterhouse-Five. My favourite American novel is probably To Kill a Mockingbird. My favourite uh, American novel is probably A Little Life. I haven't read A Little Life. <gasps> That's a doorstop. Oh, oh The Colour Purple. That's an amazing oh, yeah. American novel. Yeah. I have read The Colour Purple. We read that in our book club. Oh, so good. Anyway, we're going off on a tangent. Um, so, George Eliot, but... Not George, uh, actually Marianne Evans. She mm. was a uh, she wrote under a pseudonym. Not necessarily because she was a female, though. She uh, the women of that time were writing under their own names, but she chose to write under a, a a different name. Do you know why? I used to know why, but okay. I've forgotten. <laughs> I have two degrees in English literature, and I've forgotten almost everything I learned in them. That's fair. <laughs> I think she named herself after George Sand. Okay. But I'm not sure. Okay, well, I'll have to look into that. Um, but also, she, she was quite a, um, a character in herself. She, she was in an open marriage, essentially, mm. with, her, with her agent. And then when he died, she married another man who, um, on their honeymoon, tried to kill himself. Gosh. Uh, and then she died shortly after that when they got home. And I couldn't find any reference to her husband. But he, there was an age difference between them. But all there is about him is that I could find, I didn't look extensively, was that he tried to kill himself on his honeymoon and then and then she died. Um, oh so so I'm, I, I really want to find out more about her and yeah. her life and how they ended up together and this, this, um, this age gap. But um, again, slightly on a tangent, uh, I, I find it interesting like reading the author the story behind the story almost i hardly ever do that you know you I'm, not? I'm not so interested in what an author's like I, I maybe i don't want to be disappointed i don't know um I've, I've never really spent a lot of time reading about what authors got up to in their real lives i'm i quite often go onto wikipedia and go how did they make that what did <laughs> what was the problems in production and yeah. how, why did the author write this when they wrote it and i find it fascinating it adds an extra for me it adds an extra texture mm. to it uh knowing the context around when they were writing why they were writing but um but you know what i think maybe i'm the opposite because i if i have a personal relationship with a book i want that relationship to, to stay personal what's your next choice 
my next choice is Rachel's Holiday by Marion Keys. And I read that book when I was an adult as well. And it, I, I read it when I was a teacher and I was sick. Okay. And I'd never read any Marion Keys before. And I picked it up and read it all in a day. Um, and it changed the way that I felt about commercial fiction. Yeah. Um, because I was reading it as an escapist piece of, of work, just something to while away an afternoon. And Rachel's Holiday, have you read Rachel's Holiday? I haven't. I've read one of, I've read some of her other books. Okay. So you know what one. she's like, yeah. but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Rachel's Holiday. Rachel's Holiday is about a, a woman called Rachel um, who, who believes that she's being taken to a rehab center, which is going to be like an expensive spa. And she doesn't believe that she has any drink or drug problem. She just likes to drink every now and then, does a few drugs, whatever. Um, and she's taken to this spa and she realizes that actually it's a it's a rehab center and gradually as the book goes on you come to realize what a huge drink and drug problem she has and that she's an alcoholic she's a drug addict um that she's a sex addict and um all of these things sort of come to an incredibly dramatic head but the thing is that marion's voice writing this story is so light and easy to read and you identify so much with this character who has done some really horrible things um, and you can laugh with her that you don't you get sucked into her world and you don't realize the depth of what she has done and the depth of her problems until it's sort of too late. And it, it's an incredibly affecting novel. Um, it's just got this amazing midpoint reversal where you think all the way that Rachel just has a little bit of a problem and then wham, you're hit with what a big problem she has. Uh, And you have to reinterpret everything you've read before in the light of understanding where it's coming from um, and that she's been belittling this problem. Is it told from the first person? First point. Yeah, so you're seeing it. So while she's thinking it's not a problem, the reader is thinking it's not a problem. Exactly, exactly. It's a really great example of an unreliable narrator. Such good effect. And that book, reading that book, really um, astonished me. And I was like, wow, you can write something which is easy to read and escapist, but which tells some real human truths and goes into some very dark places. And Marion Keyes does that fantastically well. Um, and that is the book that really made me want to start start writing commercial fiction, um, because I, I I didn't think that I could just write something funny, or I didn't think that I could just write something dark. Yeah. But I thought if I wrote something that was readable and had a plot, but yet dealt with some deeper issues, well, wow, Marion Keys is somebody who does that incredibly well. She does it so well, and. Um... Is that another one of the... Because some of her books are, again, big doorstops. Is that... Yeah. It was a big doorstop one. It is, but it was a small paperback. Back, so, yeah. yeah, it was quite thick, but I think it was because it was sort of small. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I found that I cannot remember which one it was that I read. Um, but it was one of her... I think it was late 2000s. Um, and, uh, yeah, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I went into it because... Oh, look, I didn't really know anything about Marion Keys mm. books, but somebody had said, oh, yeah, you're, it's funny. You know, so I went in thinking light, frothy, and they're not, mm-hmm. but they're very, very readable. Yeah. And like you say, her voice is 
I think she's probably more famous now because of things like Twitter and she's been on the Strictly show. So people are seeing her as a personality more now. Yeah. And you sometimes can't believe some of the stuff that's come out of this tiny, lovely woman. <laughs> yeah, well, she, she's gone to some dark places, I know. Um, and, but her writing is, is so hopeful and so good. Yeah. She, she's tremendously skilled. I think she's, she's one of the best writers writing today. She's just amazing. I'm about to start reading her new one. I want to read her new Grown one. Grown up, so... I'm looking um, forward to that one. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to start that this weekend, I think. So I, I got... The publisher was very kind in sending me an early copy, so I'm very excited to read that. But... And I also think that she's, her work is a really good, you know, entry. Because a lot of men say that they, not, they won't read women's fiction. Yeah. You know? And... <laughs> Her work, I think, appeals to everybody. It should appeal to yeah, everybody. Yeah, I, I completely... I've read a lot of women's fiction. I say women's fiction in yeah, air I quotes. I, I But somebody asked on Twitter... Um, it was an author, and she was talking about her books, and, and she is somebody who the bookshops would classify as women's fiction. And she said, what, what would a man call his books if he wrote the books that I wrote? What what category should they fit in? And my reply to her was, they're contemporary fiction. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all it is. It's just because they are, there's some men's fiction, which is as light and frothy as the women's, and then there's some women's fiction, which is as thematic and heavy going as what, they, they call literary fiction contemporary fiction yeah. so I think we need to move away from that term I dislike that gendered term very much and I, I use commercial fiction or relationship fiction yeah. um, but I think commercial or contemporary fiction is, is great and, and <clears throat> excuse me just because I mean saying calling something women's fiction implies that just because a book is a, by a woman and about women that it's not universal and that's absolutely not true yeah i had a great conversation with graham simpson who wrote the rosie yeah. project um which is really women's fiction um but written by a man written by a man <laughs> so I'm, I'm not using the word i hate the word terms so i said women's we're, fiction we're using in it in air quotes. air quotes you know it's it's a it's and and i said what what do you call your books graham because i love the rosie project yeah, i thought it was great I, I did. and um but it's packaged in the uk it's not packaged as if it was written by a woman no it was packaged very differently um, and read by a wide variety of people, mostly women, I'd say, but but by a wide variety of people. And and so I asked him what he called it. He said, no, it's a rom-com. Yeah. I'm like, great. That's a great gender-free term that would be useful to use for a, a large section of stuff, which is now called women's fiction. That is a is great way of putting it. Maybe that's the phrase I'll use is, is rom-coms. If it is a rom-com. If it is a rom-com, obviously. No, just... There's some some women's fiction yeah. that isn't. But uh, the light and frothier end of it, certainly. Yeah, and rom-coms are great. Yeah. Everybody loves a rom-com. I love a rom-com. What's your next choice, your penultimate choice? That's my favourite word. <laughs> Cyrano de Bergerac by Edmund Rostand. I recently saw this in London. Right. Um, there's a new production with James McAvoy as Cyrano de Bergerac. And I went with Rowan Coleman she took me to it and I was not prepared and it was extraordinary and I um at the end I wept like messy tears like I was I was sobbing so loud that everyone says that everybody around me was oh, looking no. at me because <laughs> it's great people wrote and complained after. 
<laughs> that crazy woman. I would have given this five stars, but... <laughs> I love it so much. I, I just love this. And again, I read it when I was a teenager. Um, I read it in translation. And then I read it when I was at university. I read it in French, the original French. Um, I've seen it on stage a couple times. I've seen the films, you know, Roxanne with, um, with um, Steve, Steve Martin. Martin and Cyrano with, uh, with uh, Gerard Depardieu. Um, it's, I, I just think it's great. And it is very male-focused. And, and the female character is, she's an intellectual, but she's, she's, pretty shadowy compared to Cyrano, who's just extraordinary. But what I love about it is that it is a love story about words. It's about a man falling in love with a woman, two men falling in love with the same woman, but it's also about people falling in love with words and using words to fall in love. And there's also a wonderful homoerotic tension, I think, between Christian and Cyrano, right. which is used in the production with James McAvoy. Um, it's very good. So there's this sort of love triangle, which goes all ways, I think. Yeah. Um, although it is subtext, but, but the amazing thing about Cyrano de Bergerac is just the poetry. It is incredibly playful and um, really erudite and intellectual and fun. And it made me realize that words can do anything. You know, they can make someone fall in love with you. They can defeat somebody in battle. Yeah. They can be um, fun and painful. Um, and it's just a wonderful piece of work. You, you, I, I'm glad that you have read it in the original French because mm. I was going to ask uh, if you had. Uh, how does it... Do you, do you lose something in the translation of it? How, how, what's it? What's the experience of reading it in the original language versus reading it in translation? Which did you prefer? I don't know if I preferred any of them because okay. obviously I've never been so fluent in French yeah. that I could read it so easily that I could really appreciate it. But but um, I, I think a good translation just does what the original does, but in a different way. Yeah. Um, and then the translation for the production that's in London right now is a different translation than the one that I read okay. as well. Um, and But it is incredibly playful. But is the, the new production is a... Um, it's all done as a rap, so that it's very modern. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and just oh, it's so good. Messy sobs, messy sobs. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I can't really talk to what which one is okay. best, but I. So you're not fluent in French. I, no. <laughs> no, I studied it at university, and I have lost all of it, like all of it. <laughs> Are there any other languages, so apart from English, rabbit, and a little bit of French, <laughs> are there any other languages that you read? Just English, rabbit, and a little bit of French. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I think you might appreciate this. This was just something I stumbled upon. Um, Cyrano de Bergerac actually has an asteroid named after him. Does he? Yeah. Well, because he was an astronomer. Yeah. And the real person was an astronomer. And um, the play has so many puns on the moon and bits about travel of going to the moon and it's used as a symbol throughout the book it's 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 really very wonderful so we're now to your final choice which i think has proven a little controversial well okay so rowan coleman <laughs> just completely made fun of me because she said what were your seven books and i i told her and then i said this one and she said you are so cheating you are just so full of yourself and you're so cheating because you wrote that book, Julie Cohen, she said. <laughs> I was like, what? Come 
on. I, I said, I was very clear, you can choose maximum one of your own. Uh, Rowan chose not to choose any. But Well, you know, more for her. Exactly. <laughs> so, so which one have you chosen? I chose uh, the book that made us meet yes. Alex um, together. And is that, is that why? Because you brought me into your life. Changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> this book did actually change my life. Um, and I, I told you some of the reasons why it changed my life, but I'll tell you again. Um, when I wrote this book, I um, it, it has a particular concept. So it's it's a, a epic love story, which is told backwards. Yeah. And at the end of it, there's a twist. Um, and the whole book is sort of centered around that twist, which happens in the penultimate chapter, um, and which is the reason for everything that happens beforehand, and which happened when the couple first met in 1962, even though the book begins in 2017, and it goes backwards through time. And when I wrote that book, um, I sent it to my publisher and my agent, and they they loved it. Um, And then um, my my editor went on maternity leave, and um, my publisher then changed their mind and decided that they wanted me to change the ending of that book Um, and they were very vehement that if I didn't change the ending of the book that it wouldn't sell that they wouldn't be able to submit it for the Rich and Judy book club that it would not be reviewed in any magazines or go in any to any supermarkets Mm. or anything Um, and they said you really do need to change this um, and it, this wasn't my first book. No. I had written a bunch of books before then, and I had always followed editorial advice um, for the most part because I think that publishers really know their stuff, um, and I respected the people who are giving me the advice. But in this case, I thought they were wrong. Um, and so I really agonized for a very, very long time about whether I should change the ending or not and I I believe that that ending was the right ending for the book but I thought if I can find an ending that doesn't make the book worse I'll use it yeah okay that seems fair (laughs) so I spent months you know trying to find endings new endings for the book trying out this trying out that and the thing is that because the book's told backwards if you change one thing it changes every single thing it all dissolves and falls apart so I tried over and over again and I just could not find anything that didn't make book worse um, and and didn't make the book a lot worse um, and so I decided with the support of my agent who is behind me a hundred percent that I would not change the ending of the book um, and that instead I would pull the book from the publisher I would pay them back all the money that they had paid me um, wow. which cleared up my savings yeah and that I would try to find another publisher for it which we did and you know what happened. Yeah. I, I found a, a new publisher who published it exactly as I'd written it. Um, it was chosen for the Rich and Judy Book Club. It was interviewed. It was reviewed everywhere. Um, it's sold over two hundred thousand copies. It's been optioned for television. It's you know it's my most successful book yes. to date. Um, and that's because I stood by. You stuck with it. You, you had your faith in in the book. I did, and it was a really difficult time. Um, I made the right decision. But it had repercussions, and it still has repercussions. I suffered writer's block for a long time after that, um, for about 18 months, and had to get therapy to help with that. Um, I still doubt myself almost constantly because of that. Even though I know that I made the right decision, 
I still have a lot of artistic um, doubts. So this is why I got this tattoo, which I have on my yeah. right arm, um, which so is a flower from the book. We discussed this at the Richard and Judy filming day, didn't we? Yeah. And um, it was a case of you were going to get this tattoo if it sold over X amount. How yeah, 100,000. 100,000. Yeah. So, and then, and then suddenly it did. It went incredible. It was... <laughs> it did. <laughs> so, it really so did we're well. messaging you going, um, have you got the tattoo yet? <laughs> it took a little while to get the tattoo because I had to find the right artist and then she was booked up and so, so I got it done. But, um, yeah, I got this tattoo for... I, I was going to get the book cover, but then in the end I got one of the flowers that's featured in the books. Um, and it, and that is supposed to remind me every time I look at it to trust in myself yeah. and to believe in myself and the decisions I make as an artist. Um, they might not always be the right right decisions looking back, and um, this one was. But you know, I've made plenty of mistakes. But you, if you believe in yourself and you really believe in what you're doing, and you have artistic integrity and you understand what it is you're trying to achieve with something then you're going to make the right decision. And I think it's probably important to um, be clear that it was the right decision regardless of whether it had sold 200,000 or not. Exactly, exactly. And I didn't make that decision in order to sell, you know, to get chosen from Rich no. and Judy and, and, and all of that. Um, I made that decision because I needed to create something that I could look at and feel proud of. Yeah. And I knew that ultimately, if I didn't stand by my vision for this book, I would feel that I had compromised what I what I stood for and what I believed in, um, made a good story. Yeah. And it, it wouldn't be the same. So, you know, in all these other books I've talked about, I think, have endings, which I think are hugely satisfying. And you know when a book has the right ending. Absolutely. Or when somebody's put something else on there because they didn't know what to do or because they had to change it for, for whatever reason. And I think the ending is a really important part of any book. It's what, it's what the book's about, ultimately, is how yeah. it ends. The, I, I think there are books where I have read them and I have loved them. And I have got to, say, two chapters before the end and it doesn't go where I wanted it to go. Or it, it goes somewhere, even if it wasn't where I wanted to go, it didn't make sense. Yeah. And... I can't recommend those books to people. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, mm -hmm. but it left a wrong taste in my mouth afterwards. And so yeah. I, you just can't recommend. Whereas there have been other books I've read, they've been okay, been all right. Read it through and it was all right. And I was, I'm going to finish it, but I'm not loving it. And then the ending comes out of nowhere and you go, oh. That's what that was for. Okay. And then you go back. And now I love that book. Mm -hmm. And those are the books that you recommend because it's, it, like you say, it is all about, the ending yeah the and it doesn't have to be a twist no. it just has to be something that's completely right yeah um middlemarch has one of those endings um the last chapter of that book is the last line of that book is devastating um and it makes you reevaluate everything that's happened before um and uh oh god and the last line of cyrano de bergerac is like a knife through your yeah, heart okay. you know it's it's it, they're they're amazing things um endings really good endings Cool. Um, so thank you very much for choosing your books. I'm going to be really mean now and say uh -oh. which one book, if you if you could only read one of these, or if there was only one of these books that you could have had in your life, which one would it be? <laughs> a 
that's really hard. It's really yeah, because like the complete Sherlock Holmes is twelve hundred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's technically sixty stories. <laughs> but do you know? I even though that's long, I think there is more stuff in Middlemarch. Yeah. I think that is a richer book, and I think you can reread that over and over and over again. And also, I think. That what's great about Middlemarch is that it has all these characters which you could spin off on. You know, th- that is the seed of a hundred different books in there. Any one of those characters would give you more. So I think Middlemarch was. So because she one. creates this whole community, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. Um, Sherlock is a very good, but it's one, two men. <laughs> it's plot focused, <laughs> yeah. whereas Middlemarch is character and idea focused. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of book that I think is very rich. Yeah. Cool. So. Um, What's next for Clearly Cohen? Are you working on something at the moment? I've got a book coming out in July, which is my first historical novel. Okay. It's a Victorian. Um, of so, course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so back to Sherlock Holmes. And actually that, that is a, has a Conan Doyle um, influence in it because it's about spirit photography. Right. And uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was a great believer in, in spiritualism. Um, and that's how I started learning about spiritualism. And my M. Phil was partly about the Cottingley fairy photographs, which were those faked fairy photographs taken up in Leeds in the, um, about 1917, 1918. And so this book is called Spirited, and it's about a young woman in an unhappy marriage who is an amateur photographer who starts taking photographs where ghosts just start appearing in them. And that brings her to the attention of a very charming spirit medium um, and their relationship becomes very intense. And yeah, so it's called Spirited and it's out in July. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My guest this week was Julie Cohen, and all of the books we discussed are available to order on birtsbooks.co.uk, including Spirited, her new novel, which comes out in July. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate and review. And I hope you join me next week when my guest will be Dominic Nolan, author of Past Life and After Dark.